Hello, Rhiannon here with a brand new episode of Grazia Life Advice. This is the podcast where women worth listening to pass on the six best pieces of advice they've ever been given. And they also share the one they wish they'd never listened to. Candy's Brathwaite was a brilliant series opener last time out. In future episodes, we'll have Amy Hart, Clara Ampho and Charlie Howard. But here for episode two of the series. I am Terry White. I'm the editor-in-chief of Empire Magazine and the author of Coming Undone. I'm here talking to Rhiannon on Grazia Life Advice. Terry also edits Pilot Magazine and has won accolades for her work on titles like Shortlist and Time Out New York. She's a former men's magazine editor of the year and one of Folio's top women in US media. But while it might sound like she's been living the dream, her book, Coming Undone, is a memoir. It charts her spiral into a mental health crisis and a confrontation with her traumatic upbringing that saw her locked in a New York psychiatric ward. Coming up, there is a frank discussion of alcoholism, substance abuse, mental illness, physical and sexual child abuse and suicidal thoughts. It's important you're ready for that before you carry on listening. It is, however, insightful and brilliant all the way through. Terry explains why workplace success didn't bring the happiness or fulfilment she'd hoped for. Although I did get great jobs and ended up, you know, becoming an editor a few times, I had no personal life for years and years and years. And often I think as women, and I think definitely as a working class woman, you think that is the only way you can succeed. You have to work longer than everyone else. You have to work harder than everyone else. You have to give more. You have to sacrifice everything. She shares her darkest moments and how she got through them. She wrote on the back of her delivery receipt, you are loved. And she stuck it to a cupboard in my living room. And it was the first thing I saw when I woke up and I carried that receipt around with me every single day for months and months and months and I don't know if I believed it at that point but having that written down and knowing that somebody felt like that about me was kind of enough to stop me in the majority of occasions doing something. And one recent revelation for her, the health benefits of good old-fashioned water. Holy shit, like it's the greatest thing that's ever existed. I had so much energy, my skin was amazing. I felt like Wonder Woman and I put almost all of it down to drinking water. Here she comes then, the brilliant Terry White. Hi Terry. Hi. How are you today? I'm all right, how are you? Yeah, fine. I'm just sat in my bedroom. Where are you? I'm in uh, my living room. I've just booted my baby and my boyfriend out onto the street so we could do this. So I'm already feeling like a terrible mother and partner. But, you know, it's all about me. So I was about to say, this is a great excuse. You'll be telling them, oh, I've got another podcast now. If you could just go out for an hour. Yeah. Oh, God. And then I'll just be lying on the couch and watching loads of Netflix. Mm. And I am talking to you the week after your book, Coming Undone, has just come out. Um, read some fantastic pieces from you across media throughout the UK. The book seems to be everywhere I've seen on Instagram. How are you feeling? Good, actually. Like this book's been um, several years kind of in the writing. I did the kind of deal with Canongate, who my publishers maybe two years ago. And I kept, I had this day in my head, obviously, release day. And I was thinking, oh God, it's going to feel totally revealing, totally exposing. You know, there's a there's a lot about my life in the book. It's a memoir. And actually, when it came out, I kind of felt liberated, if that doesn't sound too awful and cheesy. But yeah, it, it felt like a bit of a weight had been lifted. And it's 
astonishing to see it out in the world in people's hands and a lot of people are sharing their own experiences with me they've got in touch with me it's it's been really moving I have to say because it's not just you've published a book or that you've published a book in the middle of a pandemic you've published I mean I've never read a book this personal I mean it really is so open and you're so honest it's amazing that you say it feels like a relief. You know, was there, were you worried about what would happen? Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, part of what the book deals with is is the many years of my life in which I was trying to keep pretty much everything a uh, secret. So I, I went through a lot in my childhood and in my early 20s and all of that stuff I just tried to repress and keep squashed down and tried to make sure nobody I worked with ever knew, tried to make sure even that a lot of my friends didn't find out. So when you've spent decades doing that, to actually reveal it all and to revisit all that stuff is incredibly difficult when you're doing it. And then you do have this sense of, oh, God, are people going to think differently of me when they read it? Will they think that I can't be trusted? Will they think I'm unreliable, that I'm flighty, that I'm no longer, you know, the person they thought I was at work? Will they question my professionalism? And you kind of have to get over all of that because, you know, ultimately I found that secrets and shame and those two things often go hand in hand, things that keep you locked in and often ill and were often part of the reason that I suffered with mental illness in the way that I did. Mm. And the book just, you know, you open up and you're in New York and you're about to be taken into a psychiatric unit. So you're straight in it from the beginning and it, you know it is brutally honest and your first piece of advice actually is about New York and I'm really interested in in how you see it now now that you've lived in London for a few years tell me the first piece of advice so and this first piece of advice is a slight bastardization of a Baz Luhrmann song <laughs> live in New York City once but leave before it makes you hard and then I've put in brackets or kills you I am quite honest in the book about how difficult I found New York, about how brutal and unforgiving I found New York and a lot of the people who lived in it. People of our age and our generation, we were raised on this cinematic vision of New York. We're all really familiar with those visual cues, you know, the Empire State, the Brooklyn Bridge, and all these stories which were about people going there and making their lives this huge success. You know, that whole thing about if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere is very true. And that's kind of, you know, why I went. I think I was quite naive in many respects. And I didn't have the greatest of times, but I still do think that it's a city that, it works for a lot of people. A lot of people love living there. It's unlike any experience you will have ever have living in any city anywhere in the world. But I do think it is a city that does demand that you become hard. You have to submit to New York. You have to allow yourself to be consumed by the city in many respects. And I couldn't do that. And I left, I think, before something really incredibly bad happened. But I still do, even with all of the kind of slight negativity I have towards the city now, I still think it can be a dazzling, immersive, exciting place. I'll never forget walking through Times Square at three in the morning and just it being lit up and it's like you're in the middle of a theme park. That and, you know, walking through Williamsburg on a Saturday morning, it, it's got so many incredible parts. And if you can navigate it well for a short period, I still think I would always recommend that people go and have their New York experience, but just don't stay too long. Yeah, I've always found it 
cold. I've never got underneath the skin of it. I've never found the bar you're supposed to be in. No matter how many times I try, I always end up in the wrong tourist bar. And it is weird. It's this weird place in the sense that it has these different faces for different people. Yes. And I think that's entirely right. I remember I had a friend out there who was hanging out with all the cool people in Brooklyn, who was going to those right bars that you're talking Mm. about, always seemed to know where the right party was and was being invited. Mm. And I, even though I had a good job and, you know, thought that would be a passport to something, found myself sat in my apartment, which had two windows in it and a toilet that had been put in by somebody in a dodgy way. And I don't think it ever had a toilet to begin (laughs) with. And, you know, an entire one half of the room didn't get any daylight, sunlight or anything at all times. Mm. There was a man across the hallway who used to watch violent porn all day, every day at full volume. That wasn't the New York that I'd gone to you know the states for Mm. um and I think some people they they find themselves there and and they enjoy the fact that you can kind of reinvent yourself Mm. but for me all it did is it kind of amplified and exaggerated all of the struggles I was having Mm. and all of the most difficult parts of my personality and and things I was finding most challenging just got a hell of a lot worse there Mm. um a couple of weeks before I left New York I was in a subway station charging up my Metro card and the woman behind me, businesswoman in a nice suit, was frustrated at how long I was taking. She called me a C word at seven in the morning because I wasn't filling my subway card fast enough. That to her was a perfectly acceptable way to talk to a stranger on the subway Mm. before breakfast. I hadn't even had my coffee. That, That is hard. And have you been back? I'm not sure. I haven't read that anywhere. Yeah. So I I have, and it was weird because I went back for work. So I spend a lot of time in LA for work, obviously with film, but I went to New York for some TV meetings. And I remember on the way there thinking, oh God, don't look too good. You know, like when you know Mm. you're going to see your ex-boyfriend at a party (laughs) and you're thinking, oh God, I hope you've had a shit haircut and I hope you look a bit ropey so Mm. I don't hanker after you. You know, I got there and it still had the same intoxicating effect on me I still find it incredibly exciting my pulse still raced when I went over the bridge in the yellow taxi but then you know I got out and I walked down the streets and I still felt I always felt very lonely in New York I always felt really isolated I felt completely invisible at times and I was walking down one of the avenues that I used to walk down when I lived there And something about the city, something in the air, something in, you know, the tightness of the building, something about the environment of New York, I instantly felt that again on my shoulders. Mm. And it reminded me of of why I no longer live there. And you you did leave New York. In your writing, you've kind of talked about, you kind of left New York and things fell in the same way they'd fallen apart there. They started to fall back into place as soon as you left. And your second piece of advice is get a life, which I love. (laughs) Can you explain where that came from? So Get Alive came from, um, it was in my early 20s. I used to work in men's magazines and I'd always been really committed to my career, always been very, very ambitious. That's kind of how I ended up in New York in the first place. I thought if I could become successful, then I would A, have independence, uh, financial independence, which was very important to me coming from a working class background. But that I'd maybe find I was worth something and I'd find a value in my career So in my 20s, I worked in magazines and I worked my way up from being a PA to being the editor of a men's magazine at 29. And I basically didn't have a life and I would stay in the office until 10 o'clock every night while the boys all went to the pub at six on the dot. 
I thought that the only way to kind of get ahead and the only way to succeed was to completely immerse myself in it and give everything, every tiny corner of my life over to it. And I regret that now because although I did get great jobs and ended up, you know, becoming an editor a few times, I had no personal life for years and years and years. And often I think as women, and I think definitely as a working class woman, you think that is the only way you can succeed. You have to work longer than everyone else. You have to work harder than everyone else. You have to give more. You have to sacrifice everything. That was certainly my perception of the way that I could succeed in media and in London media. And I should have done it my own way. I should have known that I was talented enough, that I was smart enough to do it and still be able to have a life outside. And how how do you make sure you have a life now? I mean, we're speaking to you on maternity leave, I should yes. say, you know, where you're just publishing a book and writing a hundred <laughs> pieces. <laughs> I don't want to say you've not taken your own advice, but how do you make sure now that you, you have a life and that you draw those boundaries? Well, yeah, and it is boundaries. It's drawing boundaries. It's setting rules even when they feel uncomfortable. So I had certain rules around, I would see at least one friend one night in the week and that doesn't sound like a lot but for me that was a big thing I would always make time to see one friend I would not stay in the office past nine o'clock unless there was a big emergency with the magazine I would try and walk and get some lunch because when I was in New York I didn't eat lunch tiny little things like this but which were really important I I tried to say that I wouldn't work weekends which wasn't always possible I'd put these kind of boundaries in place. I'd never had boundaries. I never saw any difference between work time and my time. It was all the same. And those boundaries have become more and more important to me. And now, you know, I have a a baby. They're even more important to me because he deserves and demands a certain amount of my time. Balance Mm. hasn't always been my thing. So it's a big (laughs) deal for me to have a bit of balance. With the coronavirus lockdown, we've been talking a lot about how hard it is to have inspiration when Mm. you're just working and just sat within your walls. So having a life does feed back into that workplace as well. Yeah, because, you know, seeing films, going to galleries, going to an amazing restaurant or just going to a different part of London. I always think inspiration comes from the least obvious places and sometimes from the least obvious people. That's where you come up with the most surprising original things and I would just say as well that I I think that you know balance outside of work can look like anything so I don't think having kids and a partner makes you complete or is the perfect picture it can be dating casually it can be traveling it can be spending time with your wider family anything that you do just for you and just to satisfy different parts of you makes it entirely valid and that can look like anything yeah and I'm about to ask where you where you fitted in writing a book. And I think that is probably your third piece of advice. My third piece of advice is just write the bloody thing. This was said to me by two separate people, my friends, Ted and Sally. I'd been grappling with the book for a while. It started off as some 50-word stories that I was writing when I was released from the psychiatric ward. Um, I was doing outpatient rehab and AA and trying not to drink or be around places um, people were drinking, which is very hard when you edit a magazine that is all about going out and enjoying the city. So a friend of mine gave me a challenge and said, just write some 50-word stories about what you've just experienced. And so it started off as that, and then I started to write more about my childhood and kind of the root of, of my issues that have 
seen me end up in a psych ward. I was kind of playing around with this stuff for a long time. And I was like, should I write a book? I'm not sure. I don't feel ready. I'm not sure what the story should be. I'm not sure anybody cares enough. Who cares what I've been through and experienced? Who's going to read it? And I was kind of making all these excuses not to write it. And I kept putting it in the drawer and saying, I'm not doing it. I think because I knew it was going to be a difficult thing to write. And I think I was also waiting for somebody to give me permission and say, you should write it or, you know, here's a here's a book deal, so you should definitely do it. And I remember both of those people who kind of knew they were two of the very few people who knew what happened, the kind of bigger picture. When I did write the book, to be honest, when I started it, and I did, I did probably 12 chapters before I spoke to a publisher, just the act of putting it on the page, the relationship that I cultivated between myself and the page, it was one of the most rewarding and creatively rewarding things I've ever done. And even if it hadn't have got published, I'm so glad that I did just put it down and that those two people who know me very, very well just told me to crack on with it. Was it hard though? I mean, rewarding, yes, but it must have been hard as well. It was really, really the most difficult thing I've ever done, both the kind of stuff in New York and the psychiatric ward, but especially the childhood stuff. And also, especially, I I wanted to be very honest about my own bad behavior. So there are several incidents in there, which is me letting people down, being a bad friend. There's a story in there about I ruined my friend Dave's book launch party in New York. It's excruciating to know that you did that and to know that you've behaved badly and to write that down and know everybody's going to see it and might judge you. But I think if you're going to be honest about these things, and the truth is that mental illness and substance abuse is messy and it's chaotic and it makes you messy and chaotic. And so, yeah, all of those bits from the childhood stuff to New York to my own failings, all of those things were incredibly difficult to put down. And it was exhausting emotionally and physically. I felt like I'd run 50 miles at the end of a weekend writing about it. But yeah, it is the most rewarding and satisfying thing at the same time. Did you think about it being uh, important for other people? You've had feedback, you've said, from from women who've had similar experiences. Was that in your mind or was it just about you? So when I started it, it was just about me. But then when it came to kind of finishing the book and editing the book and I got a little bit more distance from it, it became really important to me to be honest on behalf of those girls who are still where I was. So, you know, I'm very conscious that there are a lot of girls, especially working class girls, who may be experiencing or have experienced what I have and that they may feel voiceless and they may feel lost and they may feel completely invisible and without anyone to kind of not speak for them, but be able to put voice to some of the things that happen. And those girls were very present in my mind as I finished the book. And it was very much as much for them as it was for me by the end. Yeah, I think you've really done them a service. We'll be back with more from Terry after this. I'm still here with Terry and uh, give me your fourth piece of advice, please. My fourth piece of advice is don't get over it. I think when you've experienced any kind of trauma, 
what people will always say to you is you just need to get over it. Sometimes flippantly and kind of cruelly, sometimes not. Sometimes they think they're helping you because they're saying, look, you're never going to be okay until you get over this thing that happened. But the reality is that when you're burying it, it will always resurface at some point and usually in a negative way, usually after you have been drinking and usually will lead to the spiral of more drinking. And it's it's probably the unhealthiest way, I think, to approach it. I had a conversation with somebody who said, maybe it's not about getting over it. Maybe you accept you won't get over it, but actually you just learn to live with it. Because that felt revolutionary to me. It's like, holy shit, I don't have to get over it. I don't have to wait for this day where I wake up and everything's great because I no longer feel affected by it. I can sit with it alongside me and learn how to live with it because it did happen and it does shape who you are and it does impact every part of who you become. But that isn't to say it has to define and consume you. It was only realizing that it didn't have to do those things but I still didn't have to say, oh, I'm over it now. But I can just say I can live with it. And I think that's in and of itself an achievement. Mm. Your <laughs> your fifth piece of advice, it's a bit of a shift change how to manage that. But your fifth piece of advice is yeah. just to drink water. So um, <laughs> anybody who's known me for many years will know that one of my things is I don't drink water. <laughs> I didn't drink it as a kid. I didn't drink it in my 20s when I probably should have done to save my face. But it was just never a thing that I did. And I hated it. And it became, you know, we all build these personas. But part of my persona became, you know, the girl who doesn't drink water. I don't even know why that's the thing, but it was. <laughs> um was like evidence of how hard I was and how hard living I was because I didn't even drink water. Yeah. And then when I became pregnant with my son, I thought, oh, Christ, I'm really going to have to drink water now. I shouldn't really be nailing sugary drinks. I'm thirsty all the time. Can't drink beer anymore. I couldn't really drink as much coffee as I used to drink. So I started drinking water and holy shit, like it's the greatest thing that's ever existed. I felt like I had so much energy. My skin was amazing. I felt better than I'd ever felt in my life. So most women spend, you know, the first few months of pregnancy feeling atrocious. I felt like Wonder Woman and I put almost all of it down to drinking water. But really, you know, it it was a signifier for me that, I was really going to start caring for my body for the first time in my life. So I wrote about this recently in Grazia, you know, learning to love, not love my body. I hate that phrase, but learning to be on good terms with my body became really important and wanting to nourish it and feed it and show it love rather than try and hurt it constantly was a huge change for me. And really drinking water for the first time in my life was the most kind of ridiculous example, but the kind of most, it always sticks in my mind, you know, the day when I started drinking water was the day I decided to take proper care of myself. Mm. Linked to that advice and and the piece you wrote for us, I loved for Grazia. It was about having a child changing you. And I think as women, Mm. we're so scared of saying that that is a whole thing that we shouldn't do you know it doesn't change me I I don't treat anything differently I think the same I do the same and I thought the you know the water thing feeds into that too that as you know being open and saying yeah I have to change myself a bit but it wasn't because I was suddenly like oh I need to take care of this person mm. even though I knew I did it was like well now I need to keep take care of myself because we're inextricably linked mm. 
that's the second heartbeat inside of my body. And this little seed is something that I have to care for and look after. And by doing so, I have to look after myself. Mm-hmm. And it did, you know, it, it changed a lot of things for me having a baby in ways that I never thought it would. And I think we should give ourselves permission to say, yeah, things do change. Some mm. most for the better, some are more challenging. It's one of the most significant things that's ever happened to me. And in, you know, preparing myself to love my son, who I pretty much loved the moment, you know, he was a tiny little apple seed in my belly. I had to really, really learn to love myself and to love my body the thing that had helped make him in the first place mm. oh god that sounds awfully ch- that sounds like a Whitney Houston song doesn't it oh god it probably is a Whitney Houston song <laughs> no but I think it's interesting isn't it that we feel like we have to chastise ourselves when it is this huge experience and biologically we're wired to be obsessed with these people but we have to you know pretend that's not the case yeah. Just play it cool, man. I don't care. You know, I've got a baby. Where is he right now? I don't know. Walk yeah. in the streets. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm so glad he's not here. That's a good one as well, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. And it's linked to your final piece of advice. And I'm just interested where this came from. Um, know that you are loved. So this came from my friend, Rachel. And I do talk about this in the book. She was one of kind of two good friends I had in New York who were kind of aware of what I was going through. And she was there when I was in outpatient rehab and AA. She came with me to an open AA group. um, And she also, one afternoon, had to come and collect me from a bar when I'd been released from hospital. I was in a restaurant. I was meant to be interviewing somebody and they didn't show up. They'd got the date wrong. And before I ever knew what I was doing, I was ordering a martini from the bartender. And one martini became three martinis. And I ended up in some bar on the Lower East Side, drinking pints and whiskey shots in an absolute state because I had rehab, I think, the next day where you went and they did a urine test and it was going to be clear that I'd been drinking and they were probably going to kick me out or tell the hospital. And obviously my fear was always that I was going to end up somehow back in the psychiatric ward and she kind of came and found me at this bar took me home and I was in a a a real state I was massively still struggling with my mental health still struggling with suicidal ideation at this point and she put me to bed and sat up with me all night long she even sat in the dark because she didn't know she couldn't find the light switch in the dark and was so worried about making noise and waking me up that she sat in the dark all night and she um made sure I was okay she was worried I was going to choke on my vomit or something I didn't I I was fine and then she left in the early hours of the morning but she wrote on the back of her delivery receipt she wrote uh you are loved and she stuck it to uh a cupboard in my living room and it was the first thing I saw when I woke up and I carried that receipt around with me I've still got it upstairs and I carried it around with me every single day for months and months and months. And every time I wanted to hurt myself and every time I wanted to do something terrible to myself, I got that receipt out and I looked at it. And I don't know if I believed it at that point, but having that written down and knowing that somebody felt like that about me was kind of enough to give me pause and to kind of stop me in the majority of occasions doing something. I think it's really hard for us to have 
sincere conversations about loving yourself and knowing that you're loved by other people. I think it's a modern thing where we find it much more comfortable to make jokes, to be kind of a little bit ironic or a little bit cynical. And she and I had always had a friendship that was very much about, you know, humor and about um, taking the piss out of everybody, taking the piss out of of ourselves. And that moment of sincerity and, and genuine expression of love did more for me than pretty much anything else at that point in my life. If I ever get down or if I'm struggling with something, I always still look at that receipt and it reminds me that whoever you are, whatever you're going through, there is somebody out in the world who loves you very much and is very happy that you're still here. Mm. I mean, I feel emotional just hearing you talk about that. It must, (laughs) yeah, I don't know how you managed to, to write the book and get all that down. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking this, even this weekend, a friend texted me and said, oh, I love you. And I said, oh, you must be hammered. It's just, you know, it's not something we do, is it? No, not as British. I mean, British women, especially, I think we, you know, our our friendships are very loving, but those expressions of love, I I find difficult, you know, love was never spoken about in, in my household growing up. We never said, I love you. We never heard, I love you. Mm. Now I say to my brother and sister, all the time when I'm on the phone to them or I text them because I think I think that sincerity is important and I think having the vulnerability to say that you love somebody is really important even if I still do struggle with it a bit and I always have the same thing it's like you know if you are you shit faced yeah. is that what this is coming from <laughs> yeah Cla- classic British woman yeah absolutely your worst piece of advice we always like to finish on our worst piece of advice and I love this because this is almost like something you would read in New York tell me about that yeah so this is fake it till you make it I always relied on this massively because I always felt like I never knew what I was doing that I was you know kind of winging it that as a working class girl I was in in a very middle class media I always felt like I was you know five steps away from being found out and from being turfed out and, and sent back up to the village my favorite one is I went to this lunch with a travel PR a very posh travel PR and she was throwing a lunch for kind of senior figures in men's magazines there was a deputy editor of a very upmarket men's monthly magazine you might be able to guess the name of there was one person from another magazine I can't remember what it was and then my boss was meant to be going and he couldn't go at the last minute and he said will you go at this point I was 29 I was wearing one of my favorite sailor dresses that literally I was dressed as a sailor I had like mad bleached hair that had half broken off I had like the full kind of massive eyeliner big red lipstick I just had some more tattoos done like the full works big red stilettos he said oh can you go on this lunch for me I pitch up at this restaurant in Mayfair and I'm the first there this posh travel lady PR sees me and goes oh no there must be a mistake this can't be my party walks back to the door of the restaurant they spend ages going no that really is your table she's like but it can't be eventually she comes back apologizes the entire lunch her and the other men around the table are talking about their maids their nannies their housekeepers and they go oh you know well we were in such and such in Tuscany Mm. and they're all sharing their holiday tales she goes Terry where did you go last year I'd been to Ibiza Rocks but I didn't think that was probably so I said oh I went to Tuscany too never been so she goes which part and I was like 
the hilly bit. <laughs> and she looks at me, clearly knows I'm bullshitting, as she probably did when she talked about her housekeeper making risotto. And she said, how do you make risotto? And I said, with water. Yeah. Like, don't all people make risotto with water? And it was the most excruciating yeah. lunch of my life. And I kick myself now because in company that makes you uncomfortable it is not your job to assimilate to make them feel less uncomfortable yeah I think that's amazing advice coming from someone like you who you were a magazine editor at that time it's not like you were the intern and you were pretending you know you'd earned your place at that table literally Mm. but you never feel like it and that's the thing and you think they'll the whole premise of fake it until you make it is there's one day you'll make it and you won't have to but actually you won't because if if the people who are surrounding you are very different type of people, if you're a different class or if there's another reason that you feel you don't belong, that doesn't disappear overnight. And then all you're doing is constantly faking it, which is exhausting. I know the book isn't about smooth narratives and it's not about saying, oh, everything's great. Everything suddenly was fine. But what did change for you? Because obviously you left New York, you came back to the UK and things did start to get better for you. Yeah, so moving home was really the key thing. So I knew that if I stayed in New York, everything would just continue on to be the same. I chose to live, really. And when I came home, that was about being closer to my family. My brother had had a child and I was godmother to my niece, who I was incredibly close to and missed terribly. I got to be nearer my friends. I had a proper support system. But also I stopped taking prescription medication. I stopped drinking um, to blackouts. I just made modifications in my behavior, which meant all of those self-destructive things stopped. And that enabled me to go on and and start a brand new chapter. Terry, I have absolutely loved talking to you. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for being with us for Grazia Life Advice. If you subscribe, you'll get new episodes straight to your device as soon as they're available. We'd love that. Also, if you've enjoyed listening, spread the word. Share a link on social media so your friends can listen too. Before we go, just a reminder, Terry White's book, Coming Undone, is available now.